This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Hello and welcome to the latest in LGBTIQ plus health and policy, the show that brings you conversations with leading voices in LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing. I'm your host, Triana Butler, recording here on traditional Bunurong land, paying my respect to all First Nations people and their cultures. Joining me today on the latest is Ada Chung, leading specialist endocrinologist in Melbourne, as well as rural Australia. She's joining us today to discuss her work in transgender diverse and non-binary healthcare now and into the future. Ada, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Triana. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we jump in, you know, maybe you could give me a little bit of an overview of your work as a consultant endocrinologist, especially when it comes to working with trans and gender diverse people. Absolutely. So I'm an endocrinologist and I uh, work at Austin Health in northern Melbourne and I uh, treat a lot of trans and gender diverse and non-binary people, but I also um, do a lot of research. So I lead the Trans Health Research Group at the University of Melbourne, and we undertake all sorts of research projects to improve the health and well-being of the trans and gender diverse community. So we do a lot of work in um, various themes, so because I love hormones, uh, in gender-affirming hormone therapy, but we also do research projects in how to best deliver healthcare to the trans community um, and models of care, and we're also doing a lot of research in how to improve mental health and well-being. Well, knowing all of this research that you're doing, what are some of the most recent developments around that that you've been working on? All of our projects are um, co-created. So we have half of our team are trans people themselves. So everything we do is really guided by community and we place a big emphasis on feeding information back to the community and communicating science back um, via mainstream media, social media. Um, And so lately we've been working on some projects related to hormone therapy. Um, One of my colleagues, have just published a randomised controlled trial showing that testosterone for gender affirmation significantly improves uh, mental health, dysphoria, as well as suicidality. And that's made a lot of um, ripple effects across the world because traditionally, you know, we know that it's not ethical to randomise people to have hormones and not have hormones, but um, we sort of thought about this innovatively and looked at people on our wait list um, who were waiting sort of three to six months and we randomised people to either stay on the wait list or early access to gender-affirming hormones. And that way we were able to have a group of people who were on hormones and a group of people who were not on hormones but in an ethical way um, and really showed significant reductions for people who were on the hormones in dysphoria, in mental health and well-being, as we all know anyway, but we've actually got the data to show it. And most importantly, a reduction in suicidality. And so we really wanted to provide, you know, some robust scientific data to debunk a lot of the myths that people, you know, purport around the world to try and ban gender-affirming care. We really wanted to show, look, gender-affirming hormone therapy works, and here's some really hard evidence to show that you know, it does, and, and we really need to incorporate this into health policy. 
so that more people can access hormone therapy as early as possible, really. 100%. And it really does seem, you know, as, you know, politics around the world changes and moves forward and there seems to be an increasing push against trans healthcare, um, having this kind of research there must be incredibly powerful. It must mean a whole lot to you and your team. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people who are against gender-affirming care for whatever reason kind of use the lack of research as a bit of a weapon and we want to try and sort of close that loop so that they can't politicise trans health and, and really have robust evidence not just to improve health and well-being of the trans community but also fight back against a lot of this misinformation and, and myths that are being spread for usually not for health but people usually have other agendas when they're when they're trying to um, campaign against gender affirming care. Well, knowing you know all of the negativity that trans people have to face, there's got to be a whole bunch of success stories that trans people are going to hear from the work that you're doing, and that's going to feel really encouraging. You know, could you maybe give me some examples of some success stories, or maybe some case studies where what you've done has made a really positive impact on the lives of trans people? Absolutely. You know, one of the joys of being a health professional in this space is that I hear so many stories of joy and of enormous impacts on people's lives when they are able to affirm their gender. And it's such a privilege to share in that journey with people. I have seen people, you know, really turn their lives around. I had a 75-year-old person come and see me recently who told me that, you know, they identified as a trans woman. They'd felt female their entire lives, um, but tried very, very hard to fit into societal norms. But they described it as like a beach ball that they tried very hard to push the beach ball underwater, but it just kept floating to the top. Um, And it was really quite sad. They weren't able to affirm their gender until their spouse passed away. But watching and sharing in the journey of affirmation was just incredible. And now they're seeing them change and seeing the happiness and the improvement in quality of life um, and their contribution back to the community has been such a joy. Um, and I see this every day. I see resolution of depression and resolution of distress and resolution of suicidality and marked improvements in quality of life and mental health. So that, And I see people being able to be true to themselves and I see people being able to do what they want to do and contribute to society and just be. And it's magical. We are chatting with Dr. Ada Chung, one of the leading specialist endocrinologists in Melbourne. Her and her team undertake clinical trials in gender-affirming hormone therapy to help provide some more evidence around the health and well-being of the trans community and how that's affected by access to healthcare. Now, knowing the clinical trials that you've been working on, it's a pretty significant part of your research. How do these trials end up contributing to providing that evidence? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our clinical trials are driven by community and we want to do clinical trials that are relevant to the community. So recently one of the debates has been people desiring feminizing hormone therapy, whether there's any role of micronized progesterone. And so we did some early research um, looking at the 
benefit or the harm of micronized progesterone as part of feminizing hormone therapy. And uh, we've just finished a randomized controlled trial to see whether this has any benefit on sleep, on anxiety, and on breast development and libido. But um, we hope that this will provide some really informative information, not just for trans people who desire feminizing hormones or are already on feminizing hormones, but also for doctors and clinicians who are treating people. Rather than getting information from internet forums or Reddit, we hope that, you know, having some hard answers will be able to guide clinical care and hopefully it will guide better clinical care. We've also got some clinical trials at the moment um, looking at anti-androgens for feminizing hormone therapy, which one works better, and not just which one works better on testosterone, but also which one works better to actually cause feminizing effects, like whether that be breast growth or fat distribution. Um, We're waiting on some data for that as well. In terms of masculinizing hormones, like one of the common problems that, you know, the community tell us is male pattern baldness with testosterone. So we've got a clinical trial running at the moment um, trying to prevent male pattern baldness uh, in people who are taking testosterone therapy. Um, And so we've got a couple of other trials coming up really driven by community need and and what people are telling us um, and also by the trans people who work within our research group as well. Total side question here. When we talk about, you know, specialist endocrinologists and, and obviously there are kind of medical teams that work specifically with trans people, but when it comes to, you know, just anyone who is looking to start transitioning, is there any reason why kind of your everyday GPs can't begin that work of, of prescribing hormones? No, there isn't. In fact, many, many GPs do. Many GPs will provide gender-affirming care, they will do assessments, they will um, start hormone therapy, and you don't need to see an endocrinologist. However, some people who may have other um, medical conditions or complex needs may need to see an endocrinologist. There's also some limitations in testosterone prescribing at the moment that might change in the future that require people to have some sort of consultation with um, either a sexual health physician or an endocrinologist. But there are guidelines published by the Australian Professional Association of Trans Health that um, support GPs providing gender-affirming care via an informed consent model. Um, and so the the bottleneck, I think, is really GP training and GP confidence to um, treat trans people. And, and so it's something that is a work in progress. There's a lot of work going on in various training programs, um, in supporting GPs and, and figuring out how do we best support GPs to provide gender-affirming care in primary care. And surely that is what a lot of the research that you're doing then goes to help train those GPs to be able to provide those services. Absolutely. So we've got some, one of the other areas we do is how do we best deliver care. Um, Thorn Harbour Health have been running a statewide training program for health professionals. And so we're working with them to evaluate how effective that training program is. And I can say that it's very effective at improving confidence of GPs. We're doing some further research to try and work out how do we best support GPs, like um, particularly in rural and regional areas where access to gender-affirming healthcare is a huge challenge? Um, you know, there's quite a few services in Metro Melbourne, mainly inner north, but very little outside of that. And so how do we 
get GPs working in this space to have support, have peer support, get training resources? How do we support people in and connect people to local support groups who live in rural and regional areas? And so we are doing some research in this space as well. And I know you're also doing some policy work around improving access to gender-affirming surgery. Now, this is something that even for me, this feels miles away, um, purely because there is it is just such a difficult thing to access in Australia. You're doing work on, on making that easier. Yeah. So some of our work recently, um, led by Sav Snickle, showed that the wanting to access gender-affirming surgery, but not having had it, was significantly associated with worse mental health and worse suicidal ideation. And so we know that accessing, being able to access gender-affirming surgery is really important. But the problem, there are many problems. We have insufficient surgeons. um, There are huge cost barriers. And one of the other things is that it's not uh, covered by Medicare gender-affirming surgery. There's workarounds which are confusing for surgeons, but it would be really great to have actual what we call MBS item numbers, so surgeons are reimbursed specifically for gender-affirming procedures. And so we've I've been working with a, a group led by the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, and we've been working to try and uh, improve access to gender-affirming care. One of the tasks that we're trying to do is get MBS items for gender-affirming surgery. So We're making progress, which is great. Thank you for the hard work. I appreciate it. I know a lot of others do as well. Um, When it comes to providing gender-affirming care out in rural areas of Australia, I mean, I know for me as someone who's fairly close to the city, like I'm I'm pretty lucky to be able to essentially be able to say I'm in the city and finding it in the inner north in Melbourne is, is much easier than finding it in rural and regional areas. So, you know, what are some of the really big challenges that people who are out in rural areas are facing in trying to access that gender-affirming health care? Yeah, huge challenges. So people are having difficulty finding, even getting safe and affirming care from their local GP. Often people will have to travel long distances to access gender-affirming health care. Um, there's a real lack of resources. So there's already limited resources in metropolitan areas and there's even less in rural areas and all sorts of wraparound support services as well are, are lacking. And so, you know, we've been, you know, rethinking how do we provide gender-affirming healthcare. We tried to set up a clinic in Ballarat and, you know, over the last couple of years really struggled to recruit any GPs to work in that space. And so, you know, we've been rethinking perhaps trialing a shared care model, so where care is shared via telehealth between local GPs and specialists in um, metropolitan areas um, to kind of bridge that gap, leveraging on telehealth um, that's really revolutionised since the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to work out how can we support GPs in rural areas and how can we support trans people who live in rural areas um, and, and link, how do we link people into, because there's some great local peer support networks out there. Um, we've been collaborating with a lot of local peer support groups and, and trying to establish a model of care and a system where we can better support not only the trans people living in rural areas, but the health professionals working in rural areas too. It's a work in progress. 
Well, to that point, Dr. Ada Chung, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. As as we wrap this up, you know, what are your what are your goals for the future? Real like blue sky thinking, where, where transgender diverse and non-binary people can access the health and and healthcare that they need. What does that look like? I think that transgender diverse non-binary people need to be able to access supportive affirming services and healthcare when they need it, where they need it. Um, and it, we know that it's life-saving and we need to improve access to healthcare and whether that be medical services, whether that be surgical services, and we need to break down the barriers that currently exist. So the red tape with PBS indications or um, the lack of access to surgery. There's also the one of the biggest factors in addition outside of healthcare, there are many factors that impact that it's not necessarily healthcare itself that impact on the health, like social determinants of health and societal discrimination and media narratives of trans people really need to be regulated and, and changed because if gender diversity was celebrated and accepted by the entire country in every corner, in schools, in workplaces, in institutions, a lot of the mental health challenges wouldn't exist. And so I think there needs to be a lot of work in improving societal acceptance and understanding and changing media narratives and regulating media narratives um, and including elevating trans voices. Facts. Well, I'm hosting this, so we're part of the way there when it comes to elevating trans voices. <laughs> Ada, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and for, for sharing us all this with us. Absolute pleasure. Where can people go to find more information about what you do? Check out our socials. Uh, Facebook and Instagram at Trans Health Research or on Twitter, Dr. Ada Chung AU, or our website, transresearch.org.au. Brilliant. Thanks so much for the chat. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Triana. Many thanks to Dr. Ada Chung for joining us on this episode of The Latest. If you've enjoyed the show, why not share it with someone who you think will get something out of it? I'm not saying send it viral, I'm just saying get the word out there about it. You've seen that movie, Pay It Forward? This is your chance to pay it forward. Tell someone else about this episode. You can also leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help get the word out there about what we do. It helps the algorithm to figure out that we're actually a really good podcast. Uh, so we'd appreciate it. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe to get notifications every time a new episode releases. And if you want to suggest someone to be interviewed on the podcast, send us an email, info at lgbtiqhealth.org.au. Just make sure you put the word podcast in the subject line so we know what we're talking about. If this podcast has raised any issues for you, you can contact QLife, which provides Australia-wide anonymous LGBTI peer support and referral for people wanting to talk about a range of issues. You can contact QLife on 1-800-184-527 and we've got links for you in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.